you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. This is your first time tonight, or uh, even if you've been coming around for a very long time, tonight is a real treat. Uh, Usually, we don't have all these amazing ladies, and Matt Stansbury, uh, leading us in musical worship. Can we just thank them real quick? Yeah. They put a lot of hard work into that, and uh, so if I could speak for everyone, I just want to say from the bottom of our hearts, thank you guys so much for that. And uh, of course, the other part uh, that's unusual about tonight is I'm not the guy up here doing this, typically. Our lead pastor, Josh Causey, is out of town this week, so I have the pleasure of filling in for him. My name's Chase Whitney. I'm one of the other pastors here. And let me just say, I am thrilled to be here teaching the Bible for my friends. And uh, so I'm excited about where we're headed, and time will tell whether or not this turns out to be a treat for you as well. (laughs) So uh, I want to talk with you about a concept we find in the New Testament, and that is us, both as individual followers of Christ and collectively as his church, being the temple of God. Now, there are four places in the New Testament which spell this out for us. Let me just read them, lest you think this is my idea. Uh, 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 2 Corinthians six sixteen, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then we have Ephesians two nineteen to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then last but not least, there's 1 Corinthians three sixteen to 17 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. I'd hate to be on the receiving end of that one. Okay, Uh, so so what in the world does that mean exactly? Uh, How should the idea of us being God's temple speak to us and instruct us? How are we to understand the implications of living as God's dwelling places here on earth. Well, Paul, of course, was trying to get particular things across in these letters. He was addressing specific people with specific issues, and so each one of those texts has its own reasons for saying what it says. But also, his audience, the Jewish ones at least, would have been intimately familiar with temple life. They would have known all the ins and outs of the temple's structure, its furnishings, its functions, not to mention it served an absolutely central role in their relationship with God for well over a thousand years. Consequently, these ideas would have hit them in a way that we 21st century Gentiles can just get glimpses of. But that is exactly what I want to try to give you tonight, that glimpse. Now, I'm in no way an authority on this. I'm not a scholar of ancient Judaism. I owe everything to the teachers and scholars that I read and listened to, and I don't know everything there is to know. But I have truly done my best to study and pray and for our purposes tonight, learn whatever I could to hopefully make this all that God wants it to be for you. And so like I said, this will be a glimpse The more I dug into it, the more I realized this could easily fill an entire book. So we'll be zeroing in on a few specific ideas within this broader concept and seeing how they apply to our lives. I'm going to sketch out some background information on the temple for you, and that will launch us right into where we're we're headed tonight. 
which is looking specifically at how and why God set up the Old Testament tabernacle the way he did and seeing what principles for life he intends for us to draw from that, okay? I have four points which will come out of that and then after I'm done, we'll all process and respond to what God is stirring in us together. So let me pray and ask for help and we will jump right in. Father God, we thank you for this night so far. And I just come to you confessing that I am very small and yet I'm asking you to communicate big, life-changing kingdom of God truths through me tonight to my friends. And on their behalf, God, I just say they are small too. We all in this room need just as much help receiving your word into our lives as I do communicating it. And so we look to you. You are the source of all that will be uh, good and fruitful from tonight. And we acknowledge your presence here with us. And I ask you to be our leader, you to be our teacher. Because anything that's taught by man or whatever, it, it won't last. We want to look to your word. We want to look to your spirit. And we ask you to lead us in your time for your glory, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen. Okay, so I said we'd be talking about the temple of God, and that's true, but we're actually going to spend most of our time looking at something called the wilderness tabernacle. Now, what is that? What are we even talking about? It wasn't like a synagogue or a church building. We see this uh, progression throughout the scriptures of God drawing near to his people. So when the Israelites left Egypt, he told them to build this portable, physical place where he would literally dwell with them as they traveled to the promised land. That was the tabernacle. Once they got there and established themselves, they built the permanent version of God's dwelling place, the temple. That temple was torn down, it was rebuilt. Then the temple, Jesus, came, and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, the Bible says. He was the perfect revelation of God's presence. When people met him, they were literally meeting God in the flesh. That's why he was named, that's why he was called Emmanuel. That name means God with us. And now, through the Holy Spirit, who every Christian has living inside of them in this moment, we are now kind of the next link in that chain. We are the continuation of what God started with the tabernacle, okay? And this is very important for us to grasp right here at the beginning. What made the tabernacle and temple something holy and special was not some magic in the materials or furnishings themselves or something like that. It was God's presence. And now, his presence has moved out of the temple and into each of us through Jesus, So I might use the words tabernacle and temple interchangeably tonight. You just need to know, technically, in the details, they were two different structures, two different things. But in their essence, in their functions, they served the same purpose, okay? Now we will get into what exactly the tabernacle was, what it was made out of, how it was structured. All of those details hold significance. But first, let's start with the why. Why did God have this idea? Why did he initiate this whole thing with his people? Well, let's let him speak for himself. Um, You're in Exodus chapter 25. We'll start in verse one. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Then he uh, lists the building materials. Let's jump down to verse eight. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now we're gonna get into those first few verses, but that last line is going to be the foundation of everything we talk about tonight. We're basically going to spend our whole time discussing the implications of that last sentence. And it brings us to the first point I want us to see And that is this idea of dwelling, dwelling. God says, let them make make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The living God, maker of heaven and earth, king of kings and lord of lords wants to dwell with you. 
Have you let that fact sink deeply into your soul? Have you let it take root to your core so that that is the reality which drives your life, your decisions, your emotions, your plans, your thoughts and words? Are you sad? Are you bullied around by feelings of inadequacy or that life just hasn't turned out how you thought or or a certain thing you did is unforgivable or a certain thing about you is so shameful or you're too this or you're not enough that or you'll never achieve fill in the blank? And do those feelings keep you focused on yourself? Searching for that validation, that final assurance which puts all those strivings for meaning to rest? Well, here it is. Drink deep, brother or sister. Everything else will be stripped away from you one day, but this will stay. You are desired by God. Sought after by God, that despite whatever, he wants to dwell with you and through you dwell in the midst of others. I mean, Moses is here on the mountain receiving these instructions from God just before he goes back down to find them worshiping the golden calf. Now, do you think that took God by surprise? Do you think he didn't see that one coming? No. He knew exactly what he was getting into, and what does he say? Build me a sanctuary, Moses. I want to be with them. Let this lift you out of the ashes of that sadness and set your feet upon a rock of enduring, unshakable joy. And if you're thinking, ah, that doesn't sound so earth-shattering, you know, I'm a pretty decent person, my life is pretty much put together, then let this humble you to the dirt because none of us deserve this. None of us have earned it or are worthy of it. Now, Israel leaves Egypt and they're journeying toward the promised land and despite the fact that we can pretty safely say it should have only taken them less than a month to get there, as many of you know, it would take them 40 years to make this journey. And what does God do right at the very beginning? Right at the very beginning, about three months after they leave Egypt. They're free. They have this new life ahead of them. God calls Moses up the mountain, and among other things, he gives him the instructions for building the tabernacle. Get this. God wanted them to be equipped with his presence for the journey ahead. Listen to this. This is Exodus 40, verses 36 to 38. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The tabernacle went nowhere without God's presence. And therefore, we go nowhere without God's presence. You see, this original tabernacle was a mobile, tent-like structure which housed the presence of God and was designed to be picked up and to go wherever God directed, when he directed. So it is with these fragile little tents we call our bodies. Now, is that the mindset we find ourselves most frequently embracing about our lives? Hopefully we're at least getting there, right? Hopefully day by day we're taking steps by the Spirit toward that becoming the default. And the last idea I want us to get from this concept of dwelling is the fact that not only does God dwell in a unique way in you, but also through you, He wants to dwell with others. The tabernacle was the place where people went to meet with God. You are now the place people go to meet God. Only you are a a better tabernacle. You're like the temple and then some because you're not a lifeless tent or an ornately decorated building that just contains God's presence or reflects his image. You are the living, breathing image of God who lives to be an embodiment of his presence. 
People no longer have to go to some sacred building to meet with God. That sacred building can go to them. You and I are that sacred place. Some people visit God's temple all the time, whether they know it or not, if they're around you with any kind of regularity. Now, if you and I are the places people go to meet God, where they can hear and see what he's like, where they can find out how to be reconciled to him and have his personality, his character tangibly expressed to them, if we are the tabernacle, then what should people expect to find there? That question brings us to our second point, which is just the word worth. First point was dwelling. Second one is worth. I think we have a slide. Uh, This is the tabernacle, or uh, what it could have looked like anyway. And I won't necessarily go into all the dimensions of everything, but here, uh, just through the first entrance, you have the outer court where anyone could go, bring their sacrifice, worship, and so forth. Uh, Then if you keep walking past the altar and the basin into that second entrance, you would enter the holy place where only the priests could go, and they would burn incense in there, keep the lampstand lit, and they would tend to something called uh, the table of showbread, which was kept in the holy place. Then if you kept walking through this big 15 by 15 foot curtain, you would enter the holy of holies. Now, the high priest was the only place allowed in the Holy of Holies, and he was only allowed to go once a year. Inside there was the Ark of the Covenant, which housed the stone tablets. Um, Now, there is so much we could get into here, but why am I telling you this? Okay, Well, God is trying to teach us something even through just the construction of this thing. Listen to his list of building materials back in Exodus 25. Starting in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. We'll come back to that, okay? And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them gold, silver, and bronze, purple, and uh, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, uh, which is just like a sleeveless top garment, excuse me, garment, and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." Now, maybe some of those items stand out to you, like gold and silver, right? And maybe some of them, not so much, like blue, purple, and scarlet yarns. But let me break this down for you a little bit. Blue, purple, and scarlet were the hardest to make, the most expensive kinds of textiles available in that time. The fine-twined linen probably refers to a process the Israelites learned from the Egyptians by which they could create very high-quality, densely woven fabrics. The tanned ramskin is basically fine leather. There were precious jewels like emerald, sapphire, and diamonds used for the priest's breastpiece. Even the anointing oil and incense, God says later in chapter 30, to use only the finest spices. All these pillars, can we go back to that slide? All these pillars around the outer court were made of acacia wood covered completely in bronze. Their capitals were made of silver. Uh, the, the altar there in the outer court was uh, covered completely in bronze. The water basin behind it was made completely of bronze. The pillars supporting the holy place were uh, made of acacia wood covered in pure gold and everything in the holy place and the holy of holies was either covered in pure gold or just straight up made out of pure gold even down to the little tongs and trays used to tend to the lampstand and all of this comes together and it's communicating it's shouting to us look at the worth and value of god I mean, this ain't just Joe Blow's tent down the street, right? This is the king's tent. Let's just take one item as an example, okay? Let's take the lampstand. It was in the holy place. The holy place was covered on all four sides. It's dark in there, so you need a lamp. Well, when the lampstand is in God's house, it's hand-hammered out of a single, solid, 75-pound piece of pure gold, From what I've read, that's well over a million-dollar lampstand for you. (laughs) 
And yet, the worth of God is so far above these dim reflections that it makes all of this look trivial. Here's what I'm trying to get across to you. Every little thing in the tabernacle, every aspect of it, was made in such a way as to communicate the supreme worth and value of God over and above all things. And if you and I are now God's temples, then the privilege, the honor of communicating the supreme worth of God through every aspect of our lives is ours. This changes everything about how you live. If God is a greater treasure to you than anything this life could offer, than anything money or possessions could offer, than anything popularity or status could offer, than anything a spouse or the idea of a spouse or your kids could offer, than anything retirement or notoriety or lust or me time or comfort could offer you, if God is a greater treasure to you, it changes how you live. It changes who you are. And he is more than willing to train you day by day into that lifestyle which says to the world, God is the supreme treasure you're looking for. And in an effort to equip us, hopefully, uh, as we pursue that, I came up with a few questions we can all ask ourselves that hopefully the Holy Spirit can use to show us what some next steps might be in becoming the kind of temples God intends for us to be. Here they are. What sort of things can I do with God's money that will show he is my greatest treasure, not wealth? How can I plan for the future in a way that shows God to be supremely valuable, not the American dream? How can I rest in a way that shows God is worth anything, not being in control? How can I love my neighbor as myself and pursue making disciples in a way that shows God to be of supreme worth, not my own comfort or ease? How can I spend my free time in a way that displays God as my greatest treasure, not idle recreation? What choices will I make this very hour to enjoy God as supremely valuable, not the fleeting pleasures my flesh offers me? And finally, What can I do to order my life in a way that will leave a legacy which communicates, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless in light of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. Philippians 3, 7 through 9. Now there's one other thing I want us to see while we're still talking about worth. It's this sentence at the beginning of Exodus 25 I said we'd come back to. The Lord says to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. Here, we see God saying, If people want to contribute, they're completely welcome to. And if they don't, they don't have to. They can have what they want. And if we turn to chapter 35, you don't have to turn there. Um, We read about when this actually happened. Listen to this. It says, Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. And it says they gave all sorts of gold objects and jewelry and accessories to be used. It says all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the yarn and the goat's hair. And it describes all of what those with willing hearts contributed to help build the tabernacle. And then it ends with this verse. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Here's what I want us to get from this. There is a sense in which we in this room 
as individuals, as families, as friend groups, as a church, are all as close to God as we want to be. There is a sense in which we are all as close to God as we want to be. Now, I don't mean close in the sense of proximity, right? God is closer to you in proximity than you are to you. I mean close relationally, close in mind and heart and love. We see the Israelites here living out the idea of seeking and esteeming God as their greatest treasure. I mean, it seems like there was nothing they wouldn't trade to have God dwell with them. Doesn't seem like anything was really off limits, right? When presented with the opportunity of contributing to God's sanctuary, anything that was once valuable to them immediately became expendable. God's presence was the ultimate prize of life. Seems like they were eager to give whatever God asked for if it just meant they could be with him. What about us? Is any means by which we can draw near to God of surpassing value to us? God has made himself utterly available to us through Jesus Christ. We can be as close to him as we want to be. Is there anything we'd rather hold on to, rather pursue, than having our lives be made into a home for God? Are we quick and eager to count everything else as worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ, like it says in Philippians? Do we think like the Israelites did? God wants to dwell among us? How could I hold anything back from him? Or do we pretty easily let lesser things trump that or or stand in the way of that. God here is inviting anyone who wants to trade the treasures of this world for being united with him to come on. He is building a sanctuary. It's just a matter of whether you want to be a part of it or if you'd rather keep what you got. Jesus said it this way, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Will we count knowing Christ as of surpassing value and so have him, or will we go away sad like the rich young ruler? First point was dwelling, second one was worth, now we come to glory. Let me read you a couple of passages that tell us what happened when the building of the, ta- of the I'm sorry, the temple was completed. This is the temple. Second uh, Chronicles 5, 13 to 14. I'm just gonna read it. You don't need to turn there. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, they sang, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The same event is also described in 1 Kings chapter 8 and then we come to my favorite one in Exodus 40. This is what happened when the tabernacle was completed. So Moses finished the work. They built everything exactly as God had instructed. They set up the tabernacle for the first time and it says... Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses, you know, the guy who met with God in the burning bush, the guy who the Bible says spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Oh, and uh, let's not forget about Mount Sinai. Uh, When the Bible describes that experience, it says there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. It says Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And it says that the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. He just went up into all that. I mean, 
it seems like there are very few people throughout the Bible who could even begin to compare with the kind of amazing, up-close-and-personal encounters with God Moses had the privilege of experiencing. Now, it's not as though Moses had earned some kind of VIP status with God by his good deeds or something, right? If you remember, not only was Moses full of insecurity because he couldn't speak well and was therefore reluctant to follow or trust God, but he also murdered a guy. So, no, it's not that he earned God's favor. It's just that God graciously chose to frequently meet with Moses in unique, extraordinary ways. And yet, this was somehow too much even for Moses. It says, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, we don't, we don't have all the, the powerful chaos we had on Mount Sinai, right? All we have is the clouds settling upon the tabernacle, which actually sounds very peaceful, and we have glory, which is a Hebrew word that can mean dignity, splendor, reputation, reverence, riches, abundance, and honor. The dignity and splendor of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The riches of who God is. The abundance of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The honor, that which makes him worthy of reverence. The very reputation of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, I don't want to get too technical here and say that we here and now are exactly as the tabernacle was in this passage because this is obviously a unique event in some ways. But if you've caught on to the pattern by now, I'm sure you know what I'm about to say. If the temple and tabernacle were filled with God's glory upon their completion and we are now God's temples here on earth, then we both are in some ways and shall be in others filled with God's glory. I feel like my mind can't even be sufficiently blown by this because it's so far above me, right? This is God we're talking about. The one who exists eternally with no beginning and no end. The one who imagined the ideas of time and space before either one of those things existed. The inventor of gravity and green. The one who created everything that exists from nothing, No raw materials to work with that he could make into a universe. The one upon whom everything, everything from black holes to angels to your dog to Mount Everest depends for its existence. The maker of beauty and tomorrow, the author and perfecter of our faith, perfect love himself, wants to take his glory and not just have you see it, not just have you acknowledge it or even believe in it. He wants to fill you with it for you to become part of it and it to become part of you, for you to share and participate in it, for it to permeate all of who and what you are, for you to become a means by which other people are shown and invited into his glory. The word translated fill can also mean arm. God wants to arm you with his glory. Or it can mean he wants to satisfy you with his glory. That's what God wants to do. Listen to this excerpt from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on extra floors there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. 
but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. This should do two things for us. First, this should banish forever all of our insecurities a trillion times over. I mean, if the one for whom all things exist feels like this about you, has these kinds of plans for you, wants to put this mountain of honor and glory on you, let it wash away all your insecurities about yourself or any uncertainties about God's love for you. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God is pleased, overjoyed, in fact, to give you the greatest honor that could ever be thought of. You are the place God calls home. Let that banish those insecurities and free you to exert more mental, physical, and emotional energy on the things that truly matter, right? Knowing Christ and helping others know him as well. I don't know if you're anything like me, but sometimes I feel like I spend so much time on things that have already been taken care of, right? Does God really love me? Is he really with me? Is he actually as good as he says he is? Am I really worth anything to him? Or just in general? Do I really have anything to offer other people? Can you relate to that? Do you spend precious time wallowing in those questions like me? And notice that all of them are self-focused, looking for validation and acceptance, looking for a final verdict about our value. And yet, those seem to be the very questions God has gone to such great lengths to make unaskable. Those are the very ideas that things like him calling us his temple rule out as things we should be left wondering about. And I think some of that doubt and insecurity is Satan, you know, putting us in this sort of sleep that immobilizes us as God's co-workers in the gospel. Think about it. If we were truly convinced to the core of these majestic truths that tell us how much God loves and treasures us, we wouldn't have to spend time here wondering about it or, or looking for it in other things and people. We'd be more freed to live on mission and lay our lives down for others so they could know his love instead of always wondering about where we stand. The second thing this should do for us is raise the bar for our lives out of this world. The same presence, same spirit that we read about here that raised Jesus from the dead, that glory is inside of you. If we let him, Jesus could lead us into lives of devotion to him that we don't even desire yet. And I'm not just talking about that pull we all feel to want to just kind of make it through life and have a good time and let that be the end of it. We have to battle that for sure and realize that Jesus has paid for so much more than that. But even when we do thirst for God and hunger to follow after him, there are still those nagging thoughts that supposedly bring you back down to reality, aren't there? Thoughts like, oh, I could never know the word like her. Or, I guess I'll just struggle with this my whole life. Or, I could never seriously move to another country and be a missionary. Or what about, I would pray with that person, but that's just not me. Or, I'll never know God and share him with others like that guy. Look at me. Yes, you can, brother or sister. Set your face toward God. We've got to cast these things aside. Listen, if you're in here and you're a Christian, the glory of God who has power over death is in you and has raised you up from the grave, we cannot make a habit of selling the Holy Spirit short by letting these nagging feelings have any sway in our lives. So how do we live? Well, all of this, everything up to this point launches us into this fourth and final thing I want us to see. And that is the word consecrated. 
Now what does that mean? It means to be solemnly dedicated to a special purpose or service. To be solemnly dedicated to a special purpose or service. In other words, the table of showbread from the holy place wasn't also the table you played checkers on. And the outer court wasn't also a ball field. Every square inch of the tabernacle existed for one purpose. It was not divided between or given over to several different purposes or uses. It was set apart for one use and one use only to the exclusion of all others. You see, when God dwelt among the Israelites, it changed everything. Their whole life as a nation literally revolved around honoring, treasuring, and displaying God's presence. Like literally down to God said, Put the tabernacle at the center of your encampment and these tribes will camp on the west and these on the east and these on the north and these on the south. You don't have God take up residence within you and not be changed. The tabernacle was this place where heaven and earth met in a unique way. In one sense, heaven and earth were not made to be two separate things, but rather more like one compound thing, heaven and earth interlocking, overlapping, and occupying one another. However, because of sin, we live in this fractured reality where creation is not fully itself, not fully what it was made to be because it exists uh, separated from God instead of in harmony and oneness with him. So, This merciful God reaches down into creation to redeem it and restore it back to that initial state. And as a place where God made a home for himself in a particular way, the tabernacle was a part of that restoration. But now, God's living, breathing tabernacles live all over the world, penetrating every culture and region, every mind and heart. Don't you see? He's expanding the project. He's carrying it forward. He's taking the creation of which we are the crown jewel and he's putting heaven, putting himself back into it. Now, as dwelling places of the living God with this purpose, on this mission, there are certain behaviors, certain customs, ways of thinking, patterns of living that are fitting You know, that that makes sense when you consider who and what we are as temples of God. And then there are others which aren't quite as well suited, which, which probably don't belong as much. Now let's be real for a second. We only have maybe 80 years to be a temple of God on this earth. If you're fortunate, some of us in this room may not see next year. And your life only has one purpose. It is the most glorious, most highly exalted purpose imaginable, but there is only one of them. The Bible, of course, calls it by many names that focus on different aspects of it or how to live it out, but they are all just really different ways of saying the same thing. Ultimately, There is no plurality of reasons for which you were created and for which you are being given each breath, even in this moment. All of your interests, relationships, personality traits, circumstances, lack of money, abundance of money, your biology, everything about you was fashioned by a loving God to be a vehicle for this one infinitely precious purpose, to live as a home for God through which he can dwell among mankind, steadily accomplishing his purpose of reconciling his creation back to himself, restoring that oneness and harmony between himself and his people. You're his tool for that. Is that how we think about our finances, our weekends, our free time, you know? Is that how we think about retirement, being parents, being friends, being coworkers, and so on? Do we think, what kind of choices can I make that will make the presence of God felt by whoever I come in contact with today? Or, to put it another way, 
How can I say or do such and such a thing that will show people this is what life looks like in God's house? This is what it looks like for God to be at home in a person's heart and mind. This is the role possessions play and money and people, my job, my family, my own life. This is the role all these things play when God has taken up residence in a person's life. Is that how we think on a regular lifestyle kind of basis? I mean, what else were we given life for, right? Why do you think you were given a tongue or, or an able body if you have one? or a healthy brain? What do you think your hands are for, or your feet? They are the furnishings of this living, breathing temple of God. They exist to help accomplish the temple's purpose, God dwelling with his people. Are we willing to joyfully obey God by having our lives revolve, and I I mean truly revolve around those ideas? I think these are questions we need to ask and revisit from time to time because I fear that in our culture, it is just so easy to sleep through life, spending it on trivialities that distract from this mission rather than bolster it. Many times, aren't we content to just let the time we have slip through our fingers? I mean, why, why in the world would Satan need to do anything supernatural if all he has to do is put an iPhone in our hands and he's already halfway to immobilizing us in our pursuit of Christ? Now, don't hear me saying something I'm not saying, okay? I have an iPhone, and, and all kinds of things like the iPhone can be used in countless ways for incredible kingdom of God goodness. I'm not saying that those things in and of themselves are inherently evil or something. But what I am saying is that every aspect of who you are, every material thing you possess, belongs to the one who possesses you. And I think we'd be lying if we said that the way we used our smartphones never served Satan's purpose of distracting us from life in Christ. Right? Is it just me? (laughs) And the iPhone is just a representative example. You can fill in that blank with whatever idol you want. But look, nothing in this world is worth being distracted from communicating the presence of our loving Savior to a world that's perishing in its sin. As the dwelling places of God here on earth, let's be diligent and careful to spend each minute we have left being what he's made us. Because our tents are withering and daylight's burning. If you're in here and you're not a Christian or maybe you grew up in church and you even believe some of these things are true, like God exists and Jesus rose from the grave, but you're not following after him in any sort of meaningful way or um, you don't have a kind of day-to-day relationship with this person, Jesus, Maybe most of what I've said tonight has been gibberish to you, but maybe not all of it. If anything has piqued your interest or stood out to you or God is stirring something in you, I'm here to tell you that God stands ready to accept you no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done. He wants to be with you. So if you want to be set free from all your sin tonight and receive eternal life with Jesus, come talk to me afterwards. I would love to pray with you, answer any questions about this stuff, and and just be whatever kind of help I can. And uh, for those of us who are a regular part of this community, who, who are walking this life with Christ out alongside one another, let's be faithful to do that in the deep ways that truly count. It would be easy for most of this to stay here. Let's be faithful to walk it out together in the deep ways that truly count. So I love you guys. Thank you so much for this. Um, I'm gonna pray. You guys can stand up and the band can come.
Holy Spirit, it is incredible to know that you have filled this room with a bunch of walking, talking, holy of holies. Give us that mindset about our lives, Jesus, that we are walking, talking, holy of holies all of our lives because of what you've done for us. And we have you, Jesus, to thank for making all of this possible. It's by your life, death, and resurrection that God has made completely available to us and that we are filled with his glory. How do we, how do we even respond to such indescribable kindness and grace? What sort of reaction is even appropriate in view of your mercies, Lord God? Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I pray for any of my friends in here who haven't responded to your love in that way yet, Lord. Anyone for whom these glorious truths are not yet a reality, Reveal yourself to them, Jesus, and lead them out of darkness into your marvelous light, I pray. And I pray for all my brothers and sisters in here who are following after you. Please help us to not just know about your presence within us, but to practice it, to put your presence into practice, to live in it day by day. Help us. Lord, in these last few minutes together to receive and respond to whatever you have for each of us in this room. And send us out. Send us from this place into the lives of people who need to meet you, Father God. It's for the glory of Jesus and in his strong name that I pray. Amen.